0: Brad. As Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, the winners write the history books. In season one of Rain on Me, we will delve into the Imperial Bees and examine the families of the Biernays, the Bonapartes, and the Bernadottes, and how they intertwined to change monarchies around the world forever. How did a French soldier and a merchant's daughter become the king and queen of Sweden, whose house reigns to this very day? What does the Queen of Holland's notoriously messy life have to do with the Second Empire of France? How did monarchies around the world come to have Creole roots? These questions and other intrigues will be answered as we look at these families and their strategies, drama, and follies, and how they not only changed monarchy, but politics around the world forever. Join me, your host, Jennifer Golbranson, for season one of Rain On Me, Imperial Bees. Episode seven, Josephine's Biggest Gamble. Hello, welcome to Rain On Me, a history podcast. We're in season one, where we're talking about the three houses of the Imperial Bees. Those are the Birnay, the Bernadotts, and the Bonapartes. And in this episode, we are going to take a look at Empress Josephine and her biggest gamble yet. So in our last episode, we covered the events of the 18th Brumaire, where Josephine becomes the first lady of France as Napoleon is named first council. His role very quickly evolves into the role of First Council for Life, so this becomes a hereditary role for him and the government. And he's always been antsy to start a family with Josephine this whole time, but once he's First Council for Life, the clock starts ticking on when an heir needs to be produced to secure Napoleon's dynasty. Josephine knows at this point the writing is on the wall. She's now 36 and she is very aware that her childbearing days are over because of the physical effects of her time in the Carmes prison. But she's no dummy. She is crazy like a fox, and I love her for it. She insists the problem lies with Napoleon's virility. This is savage on her part, because you know he wasn't too keen on hearing how it could be his problem, because he wants to be seen as the manliest man to ever man. And it's really hard for him to deny Josephine's argument that since she's had two healthy pregnancies with two healthy children, the fault clearly has to be Napoleon's, since none of his mistresses, including Desiree Clary, have ever gotten pregnant. And by the way, that comment from Josephine really, really does not sit well with the Bonaparte family. Um, that comment specifically about Desiree Clary never falling pregnant almost started a brawl between the families behind closed doors. Now, remember, Desiree is kind of like an adopted daughter of the Bonapartes. They are fiercely in love and protect her. And her sister Julie is married to the eldest son, Joseph. She was married to Bernadotte at this point, and they had just had their son, Oscar. But there were rumors of her continuing an affair with Napoleon. Now, the baby, baby Oscar, was the spitting image of Bernadotte. So there was no reason uh, to question that baby's paternity, which only further propelled Josephine's argument that the problem didn't lie with her, it lied with the, the Bonapartes. And Josephine got her digs in against her tormentors where she could, and this was a huge sticking point. The fact that she had two healthy pregnancies that resulted in two healthy children, one being a boy the first time out, she had the upper hand in this argument. Science wasn't exactly a thing then, but the fact that Desiree's sister Julie had not been able to conceive for many, many years after being married to the eldest son, Joseph, Josephine was cleverly making the case that it was the problem of the Bonaparte men and their virility and not her and her fertility. And to Josephine's credit, she knows she's full of shit. Like Josephine knows that she hasn't had her menses in years. The likelihood of her becoming pregnant for whatever reason is very small, but she is getting her digs in where she can. And quite frankly, the amount of torment she deals with from the Bonaparte family on a daily basis kind of entitles her to this small victory. So we'll give this one to Josephine. Um, but it is a sticking point with. Julie Clary and Joseph because they are actively trying to conceive and we're almost a decade into their marriage without issue. Now, Letizia Bonaparte, Napoleon's mother and Josephine's mother-in-law kind of has Josephine's number this whole time. And we see Letizia really start to double down on her opinion of Josephine through this time. She called out the unlikelihood of Josephine conceiving because of her age her experience in the boudoir, so to speak, implying that she might be infertile due to diseases such as syphilis, etc. And this is when we see the Bonaparte siblings get whipped into an even bigger frenzy with their wish to cast out Josephine. Caroline and Pauline are the ones really banging the drum on this one because either of them have not had trouble conceiving. And they're looking for any confirmation of their hate of Josephine and any way to disparage her. They want her gone. They like their new status in Europe and know that England, Russia, and Austria are eager to take it all away. And they, like Napoleon, are starving for legitimacy amongst their new peers. Remember, they're viewed as Corsican street rats amongst the nobility of Europe. Josephine is still the only one with any kind of legitimacy of the ancient regime, so they hate it. They hate the goodwill Josephine has. And once again, the Bonaparte are way off base because they need Josephine. They need her. She's still the only one among them with any legitimacy. And that's probably what's making them so mad, because they see her as silly and frivolous and an aging courtesan, and they feel like they're better than her. And we, we have to see into the future. They have the same problem with Marie Louise of Austria when she becomes Napoleon's wife. It, it's, it's a fundamental problem the Bonaparte's have amongst them, and, and they project it on whoever Napoleon is married to at the time. So there's that. The problem isn't Napoleon's wives. It's that these women are the ones holding all of the legitimacy, and the Bonaparte clan cannot handle that. Now, anyone outside of the Bonaparte family with eyes and ears knows that Josephine is the glue holding this together. And outside of Joseph and Louis, they plead for patience when it comes to an heir. A lot of his cabinet are like, just chill, you're first counsel for life, you're not even 30 yet, give this time. Josephine is really the jewel of this crown. And Napoleon also knows he wouldn't be getting away with half of what he's getting away with if it weren't for his wife making it all look good. She can really put lipstick on a pig, and he knows that. He's only 30 and he's willing to give it more time. After all, Josephine is right. The only proof of infertility so far is his. So here's where we take a detour into some madness between both Napoleon and Josephine, because they're absolutely crackerjacks about a few things. And we start to see the foundation of toxicity in their marriage. So first of all, when Napoleon is named first counsel, he insists that the family lives in the Tuileries Palace, which is the last place the previous royal family, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette and their children, lived after the storming of Versailles until they were arrested and imprisoned in Temple Tower. They spent quite a few years at the Tuileries, and when they moved into the Tuileries, it was a dilapidated, ill-care-for palace because... None of the kings inhabited that after Versailles was built. It was well known for their gardens and the Louvre and everything in there, but the Tuileries Palace itself was like a shack. The Tuileries is a dump. It is an absolute dump. (laughs) Napoleon's like, but we'll fix it up. So if you can imagine like a Chip and Joanna Gaines over uh, trying to do a fixer-upper on a palace, that's Napoleon. However, Josephine insists it's haunted, by Marie Antoinette and cannot stand being there. There's several instances where she has documented seeing the ghost of Marie Antoinette, chastising her to leave. This is why she was so eager to purchase her own home, Malmaison, on the outskirts of the city and spent most of her time there once it was completed. She could not stand being in the Tuileries. She didn't have this problem with Fountain because she had spent a lot of her young adulthood in Fountain with the Marquis de Birnay and her Aunt Desiree. So she doesn't have the ill feelings about Fountain but Fountain is a half a day's carriage ride away, so it's not very convenient for the first lady to be in Fountain So she is left in the Tuileries. And as time goes on, Josephine. Has difficulty getting pregnant. Napoleon also begins to believe it is the curse of the previous king. Now, if we walk backwards a little bit, King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette took a long time to conceive. I believe it was about 10 years before Marie Charlotte was born. Marie Theresa Charlotte was born. And so Napoleon is also kind of spooked by the whole thing that maybe King, the ghost of King Louis the 16th has cursed him and he and Josephine will have to wait a decade for a baby to be born. <laughs> so he also starts spending more time away from the Tuileries at Fountain Blue and Malmaison once it is completed. Now, I think it's so funny, like, if they're both having problems with the Tuileries, like, just leave the Tuileries. If you're going to renovate a castle, renovate Versailles. Versailles is only 10 miles away from the center of Paris, so it's not like Fountain Blue, which is a half-a-day carriage ride. Versailles, you can be in the city within 20 minutes. But Napoleon was really, really interested in being in the heart of the city the whole time and wanted the Tuileries to be great again. The Tuileries will eventually burn to the ground and all that's left is the Louvre and the gardens. But this is what he wanted. (laughs) Only they were both so spooked by the ghosts of the monarchy before them. They were really rather uncomfortable with staying there. And it's so funny because I don't feel like it's so much a paranormal thing. I think that it's their guilt in knowing they're not really these people died for nothing. And I think Josephine is incredibly aware of this because she was part of the aristocracy before the revolution and she met the king and queen and it, it kind of feels like you are you are trampling on holy ground, so to speak. So I think this is their guilt catching up to them. And they're not really, they don't have the kind of critical thinking we have today to say, to do anything but blame it on ghosts, right? Like, why worry about facts and biology when we can blame it on a ghost? <laughs> and that's what they did. So for the rest of 1799 and most of 1800. The urgency for an heir quiets down. Josephine's putting it off. She's taking herself to all of these hot springs and seeing all of these doctors, a bunch of woo-woo stuff to promote fertility, and she's going along with it. But there's a lot of documentation that she's... Kind of talking out of both sides of her mouth, she's telling her husband what he wants to hear, but among her ladies, she's like, "Let's go to the spa because this is bullshit." <laughs> I mean, really, she knew and um, everything, and, and everybody seems fine with this because it's a really it's a time of great extravagance in Paris. is doing her part. She's got her PR machine moving and grooving. The people are very happy with Napoleon and Josephine. So there isn't this urgency. He, again, is only 30 years old. She's 36. They're kind of all caught up in the pomp and circumstance of the new government and their new lives. All of this changes on Christmas Eve of 1800. That night, the plot of the Rue saint uh was hatched. Napoleon was heading to the opera to see Joseph Hayden's Horatio, The Creation, when a cart exploded in the street shortly after his carriage had passed. The attack was carried out by royalists linked to the Schwan leader Georges Caudal, who was in the pay of the British government. You will see in Napoleon's inner circle, people like Talleyrand and Caudal are all kind of greasing palms with the British. The British have inserted themselves into the French court, and everybody's kind of a devil in sheep's clothing. So keep that in mind as we go through the narrative of the next 10 years, because when most people would think it's Russia, it's actually England. The conspirators of this of this assassination attempt bought a horse and cart from a Parisian grain dealer, attached a large wine cask to the cart. So back in those days, a large wine cask was basically half a barrel and loaded the cask with shrapnel and gunpowder. So they made a dirty bomb, basically. They drove this infernal machine, which is what this assassination attempt will later be referenced as in the press and amongst the people, is the infernal machine. They didn't have the word for bomb back then. (laughs) So they drive this dirty bomb to the Rue saint nice which is no longer there. It was uh, bulldozed when Napoleon III um, redid the whole landscape of France, so to speak. So it no longer exists. Um, And they drove the cart to the intersection of the Rue Saint-Honoré, on Napoleon's route to the opera. Now, remember where Josephine's house is and where the Tuileries are. If you pull it up on Google Maps, you'll see that this was a direct shot to the path of either place. Um, they had a, fif- a 15-year-old girl, Marianne Puzol, whose mother sold buns nearby. Now, after the Revolution. We saw a lot of pop-up carts happen as people tried to earn a living. We saw a lot of pop-up fruit carts, a lot of... Um, because like the boulangerie, the patisseries, they were gone. So we saw a lot of, like, in today's terms, a lot of food trucks coming up. So her mother sold hot cross buns, so to speak. And 12 sous they paid her, which in today's terms is probably like 200 bucks, to hold the horse and guard the cart while the would-be assassin stood at some distance with the fuse. So they're like, here's 200 bucks. we just need you to hold the reins of this horse. And don't worry about a thing. Well, <laughs> except the thing is going to explode and you're going to die. But, you know, to a 12-year-old girl just trying to help her mother make ends means um, 200 bucks is quite a fancy offer. The conspirators expected Napoleon's carriage to be preceded by a cavalry escort, which is how Napoleon typically went about town. He would have the cavalry go before him and then his carriage roll through. Think of it in today's terms as the president has his, um, you know, motorcade and the Secret Service goes ahead of him to clear the path, and then comes the president. So Napoleon had the same thing. The cavalry blows through, and then here comes Napoleon. But this time, there was no cavalry, because they were running late. The escort's appearance would be the signal to light the powder. However, Napoleon's coachman was driving so fast, and there are accounts that his coachman was shit-faced, which draws a lot of parallels to Princess Diana's chauffeur in France in nearly the same spot Um, 150 years later. That's kind of spooky. So this guy blows through. There's no cavalcade before him. The cavalry isn't there. And the carriage appears without warning. As noted in evidence in the subsequent trial, and I will read the evidence, Um, So this was presented in the trial of the conspirators. The person who was to have executed the plan, not being properly instructed, was not aware of the arrival of the carriage of the first consul until he saw it. It was not, as he had been told, preceded by an advanced guard. However, he prepared to execute his plan, At that moment, the horse of a grenadier drove him against the wall and deranged him. He returned and set fire to the machine, but the powder not being good, its effect was two or three seconds too late. Otherwise, the first consul must inevitably have perished. So... What had happened was, what had happened was, <laughs> they put all of this gunpowder into this wine cask, but they didn't dry out the wine cask. They just kind of like drained it and threw the gunpowder in it. So 40% of the gunpowder became saturated with wine, which kind of took, which made it more flammable, but it took the boom out of it. So the explosion winds up killing the horse. Poor young Marianne, and as many as a dozen bystanders. Again, it's a dirty bomb. There's a ton of shrapnel in it, and 40 other people were wounded. Several buildings were damaged or destroyed. Napoleon's wife, Josephine, her daughter, Hortense, and Napoleon's sister, Caroline, who was pregnant at this time, were traveling in a carriage behind Napoleon's. They might have been killed had they not been delayed by Josephine. Josephine couldn't be on time to her own funeral. She was always late and she had gotten a new shawl that day and she had wanted it to be uh, wrapped around her in the Egyptian style because again, they're still campaigning this great Egyptian victory. And here's evidence of that from the trial. The police had intimated to Napoleon that an attempt would be made against his life and cautioned him not to go to the opera. Madame Bonaparte, Mademoiselle Burnet, Madame Murat, Lan, Bessier, the aide-de-camp on duty, and Lieutenant Lebrun, now Duke of Placenza, were all assembled in the saloon. While the first consul was writing in his closet, okay... Napoleon had a clothis. He was literally in a closet writing. He is a nut. Um, <laughs> Hayden's oratorio was to be form- pre-perform that evening. The ladies were anxious to hear the music, and we also expressed a wish to that effect. The escort piquet was ordered out, and Lene requested that Napoleon would join the party. He consented. They got him out of his cloth office. Thank God, his carriage was ready, and he took along with him Baccare and his aide de camp on duty. I was a directed to di- I was directed to attend the ladies. So now he's giving his testimony of what was going on with the ladies. Josephine had received a magnific- 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 magnificent magnificent. I can talk, it's fine. I'm not cutting that out. I had received a magnificent shawl from Constantinople, Istanbul, and she that evening wore it for the first time. Allow me to to observe, madame, said I, that your shawl is not thrown on with your usual elegance. So he's basically telling her that she looks a hot mess. And she good-humoredly begged that I would fold it after the fashion of the Egyptian ladies. While I was engaged in this operation, we heard Napoleon depart. Come, sister, said madame Murat, who was impatient to get to the theater. Bonaparte is going.' So, Napoleon's like, alright, I'm leaving. I have things to do. I have no time for this woman stuff. And Josephine's like, a mess. (laughs) So they're trying to make her not a mess. (laughs) We stepped in the carriage. The first consul's equipage had already reached the middle of the place carousel. So they're halfway there. Um, That's how far behind the ladies were. Napoleon escaped by a singular chance. saint Rijan one of the conspirators, or his French servant, had stationed himself in the middle of the Rue Nissa. A grenadier of the escort, supposing was really what he appeared to be, a water carrier, gave him a few blows with the flat of his saber and drove him off. So there was an interception. People are in disguise. He is hit with the the butt of the sword, knocked out. The cart was turned around, and the machine exploded between the carriages of Napoleon and Josephine. So again, the first testimony is like, well, the gunpowder was wet, and we missed it by a few seconds because nobody announced Napoleon. And this confirms that it was wet gunpowder. It was flammable, but it didn't get the kaboom they wanted. And those two seconds means it explodes between the two carriages because thank God again for Josephine being a mess, right? "'The lady shrieked on hearing the report. "'The carriage windows were blown out, "'and Hortense received a slight hurt on her hand.'" She was actually hit with, with the broken glass that exploded out of the carriage and it embedded into her hand. "'I alighted and crossed the, noose, the Rue Nissaz, "'which was strewn with the bodies of those "'who had been thrown down, "'and the fragments of the walls "'that had been shattered by the explosion.'" Neither the consul or any individual of his suite sustained any serious injury. When I entered the theater, Napoleon was seated in his box, calm and composed, and looking at the audience through his opera glasses. Fouché, Fouché is the chief of police of Paris, not a good dude, by the way, Uh, was seated beside him. Josephine, said he, as soon as he observed me. She entered at that moment, and he did not finish his question. The rascals, said he very coolly, wanted to blow me up. Bring me a book of the oratorio. So they're all literally shitting bricks internally. Like, how can you not? This is a huge assassination attempt, but almost wordlessly, Napoleon and Josephine play it super cool to the public. Like, yeah, 40 people just got exploded. But we're fine. We're going to watch this opera and we're not going to show a thing is wrong. Though police chief Fouché believed that royalists were behind the attack, Napoleon was initially convinced that his Jacobine enemies were responsible. He used the explosion as an excuse to exile 130 Jacobines from France. Now, this is a trend with Napoleon. He really feels like the Jacobines are going to be the downfall of him. For whatever reason, he trusts the royalists, and it's actually the royalists' This whole time, it is the Bourbons who are exiled working by proxy, but he just refuses to believe that the Royalists want him dead. It's kind of this weird cognitive dissonance he has, like literally the Bourbons want him dead so they can be restored. But he's like, no, it's the Jacobins. And the Jacobins are like, what? We haven't done anything. (laughs) Meanwhile, police assembled the remains of the cart and horse and appealed for information the man who had sold the horse and cart came forward as did the blacksmith who shooed the horse and described the suspect. Information provided by General Girardon provided a name to the police and gave an ideal idea what is wrong with me today as to the whereabouts of a certain Corban. This led them to Francois Corban the man who made the bomb. Carbon Confessed the names of fellow conspirators Pierre Robinon de Saint Regent and Joseph de Lemoléon, as well as others. Carbon and Saint Regent were executed on April 20th, 1801. Lemoléon fled to the United States where he became a priest and died in Charleston in 1826. Obviously, the stark reality that Bonaparte's mortality had a very real thing behind it. Like, all of a sudden, Napoleon, you know, he he's okay with giving Josephine time to get pregnant. He's not so anxious for an heir. But this attempt, there had been a couple attempts before this, but this attempt was so well orchestrated and so well carried out, it rattles him. Even though they're all acting very unbothered, Hortense's injury to her hand makes him apoplectic with rage. And all of a sudden, mortality becomes very real to him. Like, had things gone five seconds the other way, they'd all be dead. And the issue of an heir comes up again, and with a lot more desperation than before, because it could be over in a blink of an eye. Josephine goes through the usual frantic things women have gone through for centuries when they desperately need an heir. There were conspiracies for a staged pregnancy, uh, a stolen baby, buying one from a peasant. They went through all of the typical options that were available to them in the 1790s, early 1800s. Then, because she's got a gambler's brain, she comes up with what is a brilliant idea in her eyes. It's actually quite toxic and gross, but in her eyes, she's like, this is brilliant. Now, this is where we get into Josephine's dark side yet again. Josephine is, by all accounts, a wonderful woman. She is empathetic. She is a wonderful employer. She is staunchly against slavery. She is beloved by everyone but the Bonapartes. But there is a disconnect, and I can't help but think it's from the trauma of her imprisonment and the terror where she has no problem using her own children as either buffers or speed bumps in her own advancement. It's kind of gross when you really look at it. She gets this idea in her head that her daughter Hortense should marry Napoleon's younger brother, Louis, and those children of that marriage could be Napoleon's de facto heirs because it will be a lot quicker... For Hortense to get pregnant and have a baby rather than waiting around for Josephine's miracle. <laughs> right? Louis and Hortense are not for this. Louis has a lot of problems, he's a lot of mental health issues. And Hortense is incredibly sensitive. She has just left Madame Campan's school. She's an amateur composer. She is composing marches for the armies. She wants to, she's very much in the fantasy of life, love, art. That's the kind of life she wants to live. But she's also wildly codependent with Josephine. There's an abandonment thing there uh, with the terror. Everybody's got their own trauma they carry into this. And she desperately... Now, Josephine, even according to Hortense's own memoirs, Josephine's very cool with Hortense. She's kind of always putting Hortense down. There's a weird dynamic there. Hortense was a piano player. And at the time, young women were encouraged to play things like the harp or the lute. And Hortense was into the piano. And Josephine was an accomplished harpist. So there was that kind of condescension from Josephine, like, darling, don't you want to play the harp? And Josephine would get her digs into Hortense here and there. And Hortense would desperately want her mother's approval. It it was a very kind of a cycle of weirdness. Um, There were also, from people who did not like Napoleon, there was a lot of propaganda about Napoleon and Hortense having an inappropriate relationship. And Hortense was really worried that if she married Louis Bonaparte, that that would give more fuel to those rumors. Louis was... By all accounts, it sounds he was pretty bipolar. And he was pretty abusive to Hortense. And it it, it causes, the, this whole thing is just a toxic soup. And as a mother, I can't imagine Josephine being like, okay, I'm gonna sell, she basically sells Hortense to the slaughterhouse to protect her space and it's a dark side of Josephine that I don't like at all. Nobody can. Um, in 1802, the first of Hortense and Louis' three children were born. Napoleon Charles was born and in 1804 Napoleon Louis was born. The fact their children are born within a day of each other in early October suggests that conception only occurred between these two when the New Year festivities <laughs> happen. So <laughs> I imagine there's a lot of champagne, a lot of goodwill for the New Year, and Hortense is like, fine. <laughs> she gives in to Louis that one time a year. Um, the youngest being born in July threw his parentage into question. Now, remember, the youngest is grows up to become Napoleon the Third, who I love to call Napoleon Three, And he becomes the new emperor of France after the Bourbon Restoration. So Louis also has his doubts about the paternity of the final Napoleon, but he claims all three boys because I think that Louis is self-aware enough to know that he's a nightmare and that securing... His boys as heirs to Napoleon secures his future. He's an abusive piece of shit, but he's no dummy. Um, Hortense would go on to have an an illegitimate son, and there's rumors of an illegitimate daughter as well, with Talleyrand's nephew after she separates from Louis. So remember that, because Hortense doesn't... Hortense herself has so much trauma from her life in itself losing her father in the revolution, her mother being in prison. She's basically sold into marriage to secure her mother's position. She has to have these children with this band she hates. She wanted to marry a specific captain before her mother made her marry Louis. She has rumors going on in the press that she is a concubine of her stepfather. Hortensa's life sucks. And she looks for love wherever she can get it. And who wouldn't? I can't even blame her for that. But she makes the mistake in that being Talleyrand's nephew. So you can just imagine. It's messy. It's so messy. And that's where we end this episode. Because now that Napoleon has two heirs to his dynasty, it's time to up the ante. He wants to become emperor. And that's where we're going to pick this up. His quest to become emperor of the French and the king of Italy. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please rate and review this podcast, and I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.